0: That's a
1: Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 74, in which my guest is Davey O'Hannon. We'll get to that in just a moment. Want to get to a couple of quick things. First of all, I want to thank everybody. I want to thank everybody who came. To the release party for my superheroes book, Superheroes, the History of a Pop Culture Phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. We just had the release party last Friday at Luna Zora Italian Restaurant in Fairfield, Connecticut. Same place where we had the release party for Blood and Fire. So thanks to the people who came down. I got to chat with my great old friend, Keith Elliott Greenberg. I always love the opportunity to do that. Thanks to everybody that came. And as far as Blood and Fire goes, I want to make mention as well, as you're listening to this, um, this coming Saturday, July 1st, Saturday evening, I believe it's 4 p.m. to 8 p.m., I will be signing copies of Blood and Fire. I have a table at the Northeast Wrestling Show that is taking place as a part of the Jewett City Carnival in Jewett City, Connecticut. That's this coming Saturday evening, July 1st, from 4 to 8 Hope to see you there. Maybe I might sign a copy of Blood and Fire for you if you're interested and if you don't have one. And finally, I want to give you guys an update. I'd like to do this on the progress of Irresistible Force, the life and times of Gorilla Monsoon. I'm still in the interview phase, but as I said before, I have a specific group of remaining people that I want to focus on that I'm going to be interviewing I'm also transcribing and getting to the point of going through a lot of the research. So we're getting there. We're getting there. My most recent interviews that I did, which have been very enlightening, has been with Hugo Savinovich, who talked to me at length about Gorilla's time in the Puerto Rican territory. I also spoke to Dennis DePaolo, son of Elio DePaolo, who talked a lot about the kind of connection between a lot of the Italian and Italian American wrestlers. Of which, of course, uh, Gino Morella, Gorilla Monsoon, was one. And I also had the pleasure of speaking to Jessica Solt, the daughter of Bobby the Brain Heenan, about her father's special friendship with Gorilla. And I've also, she's also promised me, I hope she's listening, that she will be a guest coming up on the show as well. We'll do a separate podcast episode. I'm hoping to get that done over the summer. So that's how things are going with Irresistible Force. Now let's get to this week's episode. So Davey O'Hannon, this interview started out as an interview for the book, and it became uh, a lot more than that. We we did both. We, we talked about Gorilla for the book, and we did a podcast episode, and that is what you're going to be listening to right now. The conversation that we had, of course, Davey O'Hannon needs almost no introduction, but uh, I give him one in just a moment. If you keep listening, anybody that watched WWF wrestling back in the day, in the pre-Hogan era especially, will remember Davey. His stories are incredible. As you listen to him talk, it's very much like you are listening to uh, the Henry Hill narration of um, Goodfellas. At least that's the way that I look at it. So I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so it's my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to welcome to the show somebody who has been there and who has done it. He's been in the trenches. Anybody that watched WWF Wrestling or WWWF Wrestling in the 70s and early 80s will know the man very well that I have on the show with me this week because I am talking about none other than Davey O'Hannon. Davey, thank you so much for being so kind and giving your time to come on the show today.
2: Well, certainly my pleasure, and I'm flattered and humbled that you would even consider me having on your show.
1: Oh, there's, there there was no consideration. It was a no brainer for me. (laughs) Absolutely. I, I, because, you know, I've been doing this show now for over a year and I love to get a chance to talk to people who were actually in the ring. I mean, no offense to the, I talked to a lot of writers. I talked to historians. I talked to, uh, you know, people that worked in production and things, but, but there's nothing quite like talking to somebody who was there, who was in the ring especially in the in the and I don't mean to make you feel old Davey but especially in the old days
2: the golden years there you go yeah
1: exactly exactly and and I want to say I'm glad to have you also because um you know WWE they they put a lot of their old footage up now on on line for people to see on the Peacock right. network and WWE network And so they put they've had a whole bunch of episodes of TV from about 1980 that they've been dumping onto the network now all year long. And there's a there's a bunch of your matches in there. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking a lot of people might be even if they're too young to remember, they're getting a chance to see you. And it reminds me it reminded me of, you know, uh, getting to see those matches again and see you in the ring. It reminded <laughs> me of how much I liked you because the thing that I like about you is, and I know you know, you won't take this the wrong way because this was your job, but it was so easy to hate you. You just well, yeah. mission accomplished, man. Yes, you just <laughs> yeah. came across as an arrogant schmuck. You know, there's that's no, right. <laughs> and it, and, if and you it,
2: probably if you ask my wife, she'd probably agree with you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but it made it so nice then when the fans would get to see them beat the crap out of you because it always seemed like you had it coming for some reason.
2: Yeah, well, you know what? You mentioned Peacock. My son, uh, who, who really loves the history of the business. You know, my kids grew up uh, around wrestling. Around wrestling. You know, they, uh, they were surrounded by my friends and, uh, you know, George Steele and Gino and, and Bruno and, you know, all of the, 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 the legends uh, that those guys were. Uh, but my son was at our house a couple of months ago and I'm walking by the TV, which I don't watch TV all that much. And I looked and I went, wait a minute, is that me? (laughs) And he went, he said, duh, yes, it is you. I said, when is that from? And it's, it's exactly what you're speaking of. Yes. You know, I said, well, where did you get that? And sure enough, it was on that Peacock channel, which I didn't even know we had here at our house. Uh, so so yeah, you know, so more people are getting a little bit exposed to to uh, us old guys.
1: Well, for the old school fans, it's it's such a gift to be able to see that stuff again and it, and it's really good quality. It looks good. It doesn't, you know, it's not like some old videotape. It looks yeah. really good. And I have to say there's a couple of cuz as we know, the the TV back then, it was a lot of squash matches and it was yep. a lot of enhancement, guys. And you get to see a lot of them from that era. And for me, I think it's you. There are a couple that really stand out. You really stand out. Larry Sharp really stands out. He's another one. Just so smart. Larry
2: was so good. He's
1: so good. And he does all these little things that it's like, I don't know. He does all these little things that, that come together and work so well. Just even like the way he, every time I notice every time they introduce him, He's always facing the hard camera. He's never
2: absolutely, yeah. Come on. And he's
1: and he's doing it with this the biggest shit-eating grin you could ever imagine. That's right. <laughs> That's right. It's called selling your product. There you go. So it's called I mean, selling your product. Yeah. So we were talking before before we started recording for this how you know you had been a fan and you had been a, you know watching wrestling as a kid and then you found your way into the business. Is that right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I I was a diehard hard fan, uh, you know, Bruno and and uh it was it, you know, I'd lived and died with wrestling. I I was at Madison Square Garden when uh Bruno beat Buddy Rogers for the title. Wow. I mean, it was surreal, you know, and I you know, Bruno and I became very close friends and I got to know Buddy Rogers. We weren't uh we weren't close friends, but I got to know him, you know, in the business and uh you know, so for me to be able to, uh, break in and, and you know what, back then there were no wrestling schools. You didn't have, so you had a, you had to have somebody take a liking to you and teach you what to do. And, and I wasn't that lucky that, uh, I got to know somebody. So what I did was, uh, you know, from college, uh, my, my friend and I, uh, we were, we were in college, uh, down by St. Louis, uh, Columbia, Missouri, actually. And, uh. You know, we we got in uh, in a bus, uh, took my my college wrestling stuff, and took the bus up to Kansas City because I knew that they wrestled on Thursday nights in Kansas City. And uh, we went up to Kansas City and we got to the Kansas City War Memorial uh, on a Thursday afternoon. We got in there about two o'clock and banged on the door, and uh, usher opened the door, maintenance guy, whatever, and he said, "Can I help you?" I said, "Yeah, we're, we're wrestlers." And he looked at me, you know, I, was, I, I had played football, so I was big and I was in decent shape. Oh, he says, you're a wrestler, huh? I said, yeah. Well, I was, but I was a lie because I was an amateur wrestler. And he let us in and showed us where the dressing room was. So here we are in the afternoon. Matches don't start till 7.30 or 8 o'clock, whatever it was. And we sat in there. And slow but sure, people started to filter in. And as they filtered in, uh, the first two guys that came in were uh, Dusty Rhodes and uh, Dick Murdoch, who were working as the outlaws.
0: Mm.
2: And, and they came in and, uh, you know, a couple other guys. And then uh, the promoter was an old timer named Gus Karras. Mm-hmm. And Gus Karras came in with Bob Geigel, who was uh, a wrestler, but he was also a partner in the office. And they looked at us and said, can we help you with something? <laughs> so I said, Yeah. And, and this is uh, a continuation of uh, what you and I had discussed before. I said, yeah. I said, uh, I'm, I'm from New Jersey. I said, I'm in school down in Missouri. I said, but uh, uh, I said, Arnold Stolen and, uh, and Monsoon said, you could help me out here. So Kyga looked at me and he said, help you out with what? <laughs> so I said, oh, I'm going to be a wrestler. I want to be in. He says, oh, you're in. That was, that was one of the terminologies they used. Right. Oh, you're in? I said, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, sit tight, kid. So we sat there. We watched the matches. Dick the Bruiser was on the card. Like I said, Murdoch and, uh, and Dusty and uh, Roger Kirby, who was uh, back th- in those days. If you looked at Roger Kirby, you would have thought you were looking at Buddy Rogers in his prime. Yes. Unreal. Unreal. Anyway, so so we see that, and, and then Bob Geigel comes uh, to me after. He says, so what are you doing now? I said, oh, I don't know. I don't even know how to get out of Kansas because I don't know how to get back on the bus. So he said, come with me. We got in the car. Uh, my friend and I, Bob Geigel, and a lady wrestler named Betty Nikolai, we get in the car and he takes us back into Kansas City on the Missouri side to the hotel where all the wrestlers stayed. It was either the, the, the senator or the Kansas Cityan. I'm not positive which hotel it was. So he brings us there and he says, uh, well, you're going to have to stay here for tonight. Uh, Let me, let me take care of this for you. So he goes to the desk and I can see him kind of bickering with the guy. So he gets us a room uh, for six and a half dollars. We get the room for the night. And he says, I'll meet you in the coffee shop downstairs uh, after and bought us breakfast. Uh, But you know, now Jesus, we were already in the, uh, in the arena, in the dressing room. Uh, We're in the hotel with the wrestlers. You know, I could have died right there and my life would have been complete. You know, I I told them I was a wrestler. That was good enough for me. You know, so uh, uh, we go down to the lounge in the hotel and I said to my friend, Pat, look at that guy over there at the bar. He was on the wrestling card tonight and we're looking at him and he was introduced as Gino Caruso. Well, it was Pete Sanchez, was nice. Pete Sanchez, who was a mainstay in New York. He was a mainstay. He was a, he was a territory guy here in New York, but he was working as Gino Caruso out in Kansas City. So we approached him, introduced, oh, you guys saw me in New York? Yeah. So that was that. And, and you know, we finally got back to school, and, uh, and the next break uh, was when I went to the dressing room and said to Gino and Skolin. Yeah, I, I was uh, working for Gus Karras out there, and uh, uh, Bob Geigel said you could help me out.
1: <laughs> so you basically you, know, you bluffed your way in,
2: basically. Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. Yeah. I BS my way right in, <laughs> and uh, and they said, you know, you know Bob Geigel. Well, of course I know Bob Geigel. I was out in Kansas City, but before that happened, before I came home, Bob Geigel said to me, since you're in do you want to wrestle uh, or do you want to, he said, do you want to work? Mm -hmm. I didn't know what work meant. I didn't know what work meant. Uh, I knew what a shoot was because I was an amateur. Right. So I could shoot with you. He said, be in Sedalia on Tuesday night. So I go to Sedalia on Tuesday night. And he says, you all set. I had gotten a pair of boxing shoes (laughs) from someplace, black boxing shoes. They were a little higher in my amateur wrestling shoes, I had my amateur singlet that I had, and he booked me for a match, and I was booked with a guy named Joe Scarpello. Joe Scarpello, I was about two hundred and fifty-five pounds, pretty decent shape, and Joe Scarpello was—I guess he's was about five nine, and yeah, he might have weighed two fifteen, not sure. And the referee was an old-timer named Ronnie Etchison. And uh, we get in the ring, and we're standing there, and Ronnie Etchison says, Okay, boys. And I say, Are we shooting or working? Only because I heard that terminology in the dressing room. And Ronnie Etchison, who was a grisly old guy that was refereeing at the time, said, Oh, Christ, here we go. (laughs) <laughs> just like that. And Joe Scarpello looked at me and said, take your best hold kid. Take your best hold. Well, for about the next eight minutes, I didn't have a best hold. This guy tied me in more knots than you could even imagine. He, he cleaned my clock. He didn't hurt me, but as we do, uh, he let me know that he could. Let me know that he could. And when it was over, I'm sitting on a bench in the dressing room. He walked by me. He gave me a little pat on the back of the head and said, See you tomorrow, kid. And a little voice in my head said, Yeah, not so sure about that. (laughs) Not not really positive if you're going to see me tomorrow or not. But uh, Ronnie Etchison, who was also an agent for the office, came and said, Uh, listen, Geigel wants to know if you want to do it two more times uh, before you go home for break. I said, yeah, I guess so. So he said, Friday night, uh, be up in St. Joe. That's where uh, the Kansas City Territory did their TV. Mm -hmm. And Saturday night, you're going to go to Waterloo. Uh, So I go to St. Joe, my friend and I, uh, get another guy to drive. We go all the way up to St. Joe and I'm booked on uh, Kansas City TV uh, with some guy named Lou Fez. <laughs> oh, well, man. Talk about a baptism yeah. of fire. Yeah, you're not shitting me. Jesus. I'm sorry. You're not kidding me. No, you're fine. So, Don't worry about that, please. So, so, you know, once again, I knew how to wrestle, and, and Lou was a funny guy that if he thought he could take advantage also, he gave you a little test. But somebody warned me Somebody warned me, and he came over, and he said, hey, kid. He said, uh, actually, he said, hey, punk, that's what, you, that's what you call the new boy in the business at the time. I didn't know it at the time, but that's what he did. He said, I hear you could shoot. I just said, oh, yes, sir, a little bit. Just like that. I was as respectful and polite as I could be. Mm-hmm. So he said, okay. He says, oh, we will be all right. He says, but uh, listen, kid, he said, uh, you know what? At some point, I may, uh, I may uh, lean you back and, and give you a pretty good slap. And uh, just from being an athlete in contact sports, you learn that's something you don't let somebody do yeah. unless, unless you let them. And I said, Mr. Fez, if you slap me, I'm going to slap you right back. And he just smirked and walked away. Huh. And you know, he We wrestled. I didn't do much. You know, he, he did his stuff and, and that was that we had a match and, and he said to me you're going to be okay kid. So that was Friday night in St. Joe. The next night was Waterloo, Iowa. And and uh you know I was I was a little more comfortable but I was still a nervous wreck and you know getting a knot in my stomach uh before the match and didn't know what to do and you know like I would grab them on the wrong side. I don't know if you know that you know we all work on the left side.
0: Right. Uh, right. You know
2: I'd, I'd be I'd be doing the wrong thing uh you know but the next guy uh that I worked with uh Probably didn't know how to wrestle as well as I. His name was, I think, Danny Hodge. And uh, oh yeah, you got to yeah. be kidding me. This is—I no, uh, mean, were they doing no, this to you kidding. on
1: purpose? I mean, was this something well? That... They
2: well, I'm telling you, it was a test. Yeah, there you go. That'll do it. It was, and and it wasn't a test to see if I knew how to wrestle. It was a test to see if I was a jerk which I probably am, but they didn't find out. Uh, but they wanted, they wanted to see if, to you, see, could, if you could take it.
1: They you wanted
2: do. to see what kind of reaction. And, and the other big test, after you work with one of those guys, is in the dressing room after the match, inevitably somebody would walk up to you, even if it was somebody that you didn't work with, if they watched, they'd say, and I, and I did it a million times for guys, I'd say, would you mind if I gave you a little bit of constructive criticism? So they, they watched really close to see what their reaction was going to be. And my reaction was, absolute, sure, please, whatever you, and they would take you, bring you somewhere private, mm-hmm. in the shower, there was room, say, you know what? I saw you do this. Why don't you try this? So many guys did it for me including, uh, Danny and, and Fez and Joe Scarpello and Don Jardine and, and both blackjacks. I mean, all these, you know, if you were a new guy and they thought you were an okay guy, they, they took you by the hand and helped you out. On the other hand, I saw somebody say, well, no, that's how I do things. Okay. Well, I knew right away that was a bad answer. You know, right, right. Because, because that's how you do things. OK, well, this is how we do things. This is how we do things.
1: You have to be so willing to know. learn. I mean, you, you hear oh, that. Oh, my God. Even today, it, you hear about guys that just don't want to take advice. Oh, from Oh,
2: Jesus. It's unbelievable. You know what? I mean, I did it. You know, after I was in the business for several years, I didn't anymore. But I would put my boots on. I always used to hate wearing a wrestling tight, so I'd I'd, I'd just bring a pair of shorts, uh, gym shorts or something, in a shirt, and I would sneak out and I would watch every match that I could. I'd watch every single match that I could to see if I could steal something to do or learn how to do something a little better, you know, all of that stuff. I'd, you have to you had to watch to learn it. Don Jardine is the one that smartened me up. About working, I got done working with, it might have been Tony Gurria for his first match uh, uh, in, in the New York Territory in Philadelphia. And I went back to watch the other matches. And we had a spot we could sit up in the dark in the arena. and Nobody saw us. And Don Jardine comes and he's sitting behind me. And he says, hey, kid. He says, how you doing? I said, oh, okay. How are you? I said, my name is Dave. He says, oh, Don. He says, oh, I noticed you work European style there a little bit. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. I said, so I just said, oh, yeah, sometimes I, you know, I just, I forget. He walked away, and I concentrated. I said, look at this. I went to the dressing room. I got one of the Apter magazines. I looked at it, and I said, every one of them's got the left arm, the left leg, the headlocks on the left. Oh, I'm getting it. I know what he means, because Jardine said European style. He says, yeah, I saw you grab him on the wrong side a couple of times.
1: So he was trying to say it in a diplomatic way to you.
2: He helped me. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he pointed me in the right direction. Don Jardine was a great guy, but he was a really serious kind of private, quiet guy. So, you know, he, uh, he, he told me that in a way that he didn't want to make me feel like a jerk. You know, yeah. he, he could have said, the hell are you doing? We don't do that. But, you know, he, he, he was diplomatic about it so so it was kind of neat so you know I'd go back and I'd watch again and I'd watch again and I'd see somebody do something and say okay I'm going to try that but I never went to a to a a wrestling school you know I never did that stuff you the, I had 100% on the job training 100% you know what guys would say not like this like this uh, frank hickey you know <laughs> frank hickey I mean, he was a, he was like a cartoon character, <laughs> but, but he was a tough, tough, grisly guy. And, and at one point really early in the career, I was in Ohio and I was in a tag match. And I don't remember who my partner was, you know, another new guy like me that didn't know, a, you know, how to chew gum and walk at the same time. And we were working in a tag against Frank Hickey and Frank Valois. You know, I think at the time they had about 500 years' experience in the business. So, <laughs> so I go out and you know I don't know you know how tuned in the, the the people that listen or or you are to the business. Some guys work close and tight, and some guys are really loose. You work with Bobo Brazil, you never knew he was in the ring. He was so light. Right. You know, uh, other guys I used to I used to work a little bit tight because I wanted to be convincing for the fans. I always thought they were right there at ringside you know they're they're going to make I'm going to make sure they know that sure. I'm grabbing this guy so so and and don't forget I was an amateur, so I locked up with Frank Hickey, and you know when when you're when you're not when when you're not ring aware there, you have to have an awareness when you're in a ring it's it's like being in a different little atmosphere uh you think that everybody in the arena can hear what you say. You know, but there's ways to do it, so nobody hears what you say. Well, I locked up with Frank Hickey. He looked over his shoulder at his partner, Frank Valois, and I heard him say, Oh, my God, run for your life. Cement mixer, (laughs) cement mixer. What? I I didn't know what he was talking about. He was talking about me. You know, I was too stiff for him. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And he took me over to the ropes. He says, no, not like that, sonny boy. He said, you listen to Mother Hickey. He says, well, we'll show you what to do. You know, And, and he did a couple of things. And right in the ring, he's saying to me, now, see, that didn't hurt, did it? that? Was how, that's how you do that. You know? I'm saying, Holy crap. And, you're, <laughs> well, and you're, for, you're
1: worrying that people are going to hear what
2: he's saying to you. I thought everybody in the arena heard what he said. Well, I told everybody. I'm saying, oh my god, oh my god! And so, like, you know, after I, you know, I called everybody Mister uh, yeah. for a while. I said, you know, Mister Hickey, now oh, Mister Hickey, your ass. He says, I oh, just call me Mother Hickey. That's all. That's <laughs> all. He was, he was a trip and a half, man. He yeah. was unbelievable. The spaceman. The spaceman. The spaceman. Right? Yes, sir. Now, and do you know that he was one of Patton's tank guys?
1: No, I didn't
2: know that. Oh yeah, yeah. Frank Hickey was one of Patton's. Patton's heroes, the wow. greatest generation that's, that's right fantastic
1: you know i did um I wrote the biography of the Sheikh, the original sheikh,
2: and oh, okay um,
1: and he also drove a tank during the war when he was and he was maybe nineteen twenty years old, and I think oh it my been, God yeah, they might have run into each other, who knows
2: who knows is right and and just you know if the, and, and if I get too long-winded here, no. you know just say shut up, but the the original sheikh. When my mom and dad took me to a, because I was probably uh, uh, squeezing their brain so much about wrestling, but they took me to a show in Newark, New Jersey, to a place called the Laurel Gardens, you know, which of course isn't there anymore. It was a pretty famous arena, a little arena in Newark, and uh, I'm sitting on the bleachers with my mom and dad, and I look down the end of the bleacher, and there's the original Sheik. And wow. you know, I was a kid. I was a kid, and I looked down the, and he looked at me, and gave me a look that frightened me so much. I got up and I went and sat on the other side of my father. <laughs> well, Paige, through me being in the business, and JJ Dillon and I are traveling someplace once, and he was he was pretty friendly with the sheik.
1: Yes, he worked for very him in much Detroit. So. Yeah.
2: Yes. He, he helped get and, him started. And yes, yes. And and I'm telling JJ the story, and he said, Don't even finish. He said that look he gave you, I said it was unreal. It was unreal. It it scared me. He says, That's what it was all about back then. Yeah. That's what it was all about. Expression. Making people believe. Like like what we were
1: Make talking it, about at the beginning, just having that yes. expression on your face. Right away, people know. What to expect, like what I loved, what I would always love about one of your matches is, look, here's the reality of it is most of the time you were going to lose. So, right. so the, you'd have this confidence about you that was completely not earned at all. You know, right? Was, exactly. it was this guy that thought he was the greatest thing ever. It was a hot shot and, and, and he never won, you know, so it almost yep. made you even more obnoxious.
2: You know what I yes, mean? Yes. Yeah. Well, you express. why it's so hard to work with a mask. Right. Takes expression away, and and you know I used to make the face or whatever I did, and to this day, you know if if I want to really uh, twist my wife's knickers a little bit, you know I'll make a face. She'll say, "You're still making faces. Stop it. What are you doing?" <laughs> <laughs> right. She, she every and she'll say, "Let's just get something really clear. You're not Davy O'Hannon anymore okay (laughs) oh
1: no oh yeah (laughs) well but you see the the but the facial stuff is so important and it's interesting because a lot of times the guys that are amateur wrestlers like you were you know they, yeah. they it may it may take them a little while to pick up on that because you don't have to worry about any of that stuff you know right and and it's not something you think about when you're trying to think of well I have to think about this as a performance you know so sometimes it seems like it doesn't always come as natural to the guys that were you know legitimate yeah. wrestlers.
2: Well, you know what? It, it probably uh, you know I was really lucky because don't forget as a fan I watched the golden age of wrestling. Yes. I, well, you know, these guys were bigger than life. Well, when I got in the business, a lot of them were still active. A lot of them were still active. So I got to learn from the best. I watched Baron Sakluna and Bruno in the old garden. You know, I watched them. Mike Sakluna turned into one of my closest friends. He and his wife Babysat our kids. Wow. You know, uh, uh, so many. I, I mean, it wasn't a pleasant experience. I worked with with Dr. Jerry Graham. Let me tell you, Jerry Graham was a superstar. He was a creep. He was a lowlife. You know, uh, uh, and I had, a, I, I, I had a problem with him here in New York that I didn't even know happened. He actually spit on me from behind me. Jeez. And I didn't know that happened. And as I walked into a dressing room, George Steele, who I was very, very close with, uh, said to me, if you ever let somebody do that to you again, you and I are going to have a problem. And I said, what? What? But I kept walking in. I was in. And then the next guy to catch me with Bruno, and he said, Davey, I'm really surprised you let that happen. Well, I didn't know it happened. I didn't know it happened. You know, Cherry Graham, to me, was was a big shot, right? He was not not anymore. I mean, he came back and he, you know, he was an alcoholic, unfortunately. Yeah. But I, you know, I finally caught up, caught up with him in Amarillo, and and uh, uh, myself, uh, Rip Hawk, Sweet Hansen, and Terry Funk uh, had gone somewhere, and uh, was an old wrestler that owned a hotel and a bar, and Jerry Graham was sweeping up. The guy had given him a job, and uh, he came out with a big cigar. And his broom, and I, you know, I, I really didn't know him, and uh, you know the old timers knew him, Rip Hawk, Swede, you know they knew Jerry Graham, yeah. And uh, hey, hey, Doc, come on, how you doing? How do we want you to meet a new boy, and I, you know, the new boy was already in the business for five years, and uh, he had a cigar in his mouth, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, what's your name?" I said, "Dave." I said, "But we've already met," and he said, "Oh, yeah." kind of took the cigar out of his mouth and sneered. I said, yeah, I said, as a matter of fact, uh, you spit on me. And he looked at me and he said, then you must've deserved it.
0: Mm.
2: And it was, it was one of the very few times that I let my emotion, uh, take control. And I knocked him out cold lights, lights, right out lights, right out one shot. I mean, he, you know, he was older than I was and, he wasn't in shape, but you know, right. I, I just lost my temper a bit, which I, I rarely, rarely ever do.
1: How did the and, rest of uh, them
2: react when you did that? Oh, Sweet. Sweet, <laughs> Sweet's just kind of... The guy that owned the bar was an old wrestler named Al Lovelock. He was okay. one of the assassins, I think. And, and Al Lovelock says, holy shit, take it out, so get out, get out. And, and Sweet <laughs> just looks at him, and Terry Funk says, Oh, uh, that's a hell of an answer, right there. <laughs> <He's>... <laughs> I, yeah, Terry was a trip. Terry Terry was uh, was great. Do you so, know? And, and why
1: did he spit spit on you in the first place, though? What was the because? Cause I was a new punk.
2: I oh, would, I okay. just got into business.
1: So he was a jerk, just... basically.
2: Oh, he oh he was terrible. He <laughs> and and subsequently, um. Bruno and I are somewhere, and I said, Bruno, i got to ask you a question about Jerry Graham, and Bruno says, oh God, oh yeah. So Bruno tells me a story about Bruno, Bobo, and Jerry Graham traveling from Washington TV, coming up for the garden show that Bruno and Jerry Graham were going to be in, and something happened, and Bruno said to Bobo, stop the car stop the car, Jersey Turnpike. Now, now let me tell you something. Bruno never told the word of a lie in his life. Mm-hmm. He did not have the capacity to do that. He was as honest as could be. So I said, well, what happened? He said, Bobo pulled the car over. He says, I got out of the front seat. Graham was in the back seat. He said, "I, you know, it was a two-door. He said, I folded the seat up. He says, get out. I'm kicking the shit out of you right now, right now. No, I don't want to do that. Dude. Bruno said, just as I'm going to reach in, a state trooper pulls up behind us and stops and walks over, says, you okay? So Bruno says, oh yeah, we just got done wrestling. You know, we're just stretching our legs a little bit. Oh yeah, you're Bruno. Oh geez. Okay. Everything. Okay. So he said, so we got up to uh, New York and he said to, he said to Graham, he said, not a problem. I'll take care of it in the ring tonight. I'll take care of it in the ring. And he told me that before the match in the dressing room, Jerry Graham walked over to him and had bought him a box of very, very expensive cigars and said, I just wanted to apologize. And Bruno would have killed him. Killed him. Right. I mean, Bruno was a machine. You know, he said, I I just don't want a problem. Uh, You know, I'm sorry that got out of hand. Whatever it was. So we're in the car and I said, yeah, Bruno, you know what? I cracked him one. I said, and I do it again. I said that low life. So Bruno says, well, Davey, he said, you know, I know you had the problem with them. He says, but you know, I I don't, I don't speak bad about the dead. Only good. I said, yeah, I said, I know Bruno. I said, okay, let me see if I could change that. I said, uh, don't speak bad, only good. I said, Jerry Graham's dead. Good. So he, go, he says, what? I said, you said only say good. I said, Jerry Graham's dead. Good. He said, oh, right. no, no, no. Oh, my yeah. God. He says, oh, Jesus, no. That's not what I meant. I said, I know right. that's not what you meant. You
1: know? Yeah, that had to so, be a lot later, though. He he
2: passed in the late
1: 90s, right, I think? Yes.
2: Yeah, well, I don't know if it was, I don't know. When he died, but it it was the one and only time that Vince gave him a chance to come back. And he put him on TV. Yes. And we worked on TV. And then he went to a hotel room and he completely trashed the room, drunk, wrecked it, did, did terrible, disgusting things in the room. Uh, and and Vince said, that's it, you're done.
1: Yeah, he was you're ch- done. So, you know, when he to passed away, him. I don't know. Yeah, he yes. had been his favorite wrestler, you know, as yes. a lot of people know that story. And so he gave him so many
2: opportunities, but he just, yes. owned it. yeah, exactly right. And his so, father you know, gave him opportunities too. Oh, exactly. You know, so, so for me, you know, the learning and the business came on the job because these guys were absolute legends. They were legends. How could how did you not learn something from watching every one of them? You know, I, I used to watch Skoland uh, wrestle whoever Bruno's opponent was going to be. That was a test, you right. know, for the fans. I I I worked with Skoland a zillion times. You know, I I worked with all of them. I worked with Haystacks, I worked with Bobo. Uh, you know, I, I you know, you forget your matches after you have so many of them. Uh, you know, I I worked with Strongbow. Uh, you know, there's just so many things. It was uh it was such a, a surreal life for me. You know, when, when I would get pouty at some point and, and uh, my wife say, wait a minute, look what you've got to do. Look what you've got to do. You know, and I was lucky. I made a decent living. We're not rich. You know, I'm, I'm just finishing up uh, my last uh, uh, kid's college uh, tuition. Uh, but, you know, we always had a nice house and we always lived nicely. And, and uh, she says, look what you've got to do. She said, you were a little kid. You wanted to be a professional wrestler. Guess what? You did. You know, you worked in the garden. You know, I worked overseas. I, you know, I worked with Baba the Giant. Uh, you know, all kinds of different things like that happened. So, yeah, you know, lucky me. Lucky me. Well, I, got you know. The, I was Bruno's friend. I was Gino's friend. You know, not, not just in the business. We were close personal friends. Uh, unreal. Unreal.
1: Yeah, getting to live a dream like that is rare. And I mean, even because back then, too, there was, there were, I think there were just more better opportunities for people to just like you said, to just make a decent living at it. You didn't, you know, not to be not to, you know, maybe you weren't in the main event, and you weren't on top. Okay, fine. But you but there were also a lot of guys that were able to make a good living and they didn't need to have another job and they could just be wrestlers and have a pretty yeah. good lifestyle.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I worked, I worked a couple of top spots in New York. You know, when, when Billy Graham, uh, rest his soul, hurt his leg. Uh, I took a couple of weeks of his shots, you know, so I worked, uh, on top with Peter, Maivia uh, and a couple with Strongbow. You know, I was, I was just subbing for him. You know, I wasn't, that wasn't my spot. Uh, you know, so I worked, I worked underneath in New York and I worked in the middle and I had a couple of top, but then you go to other territories, you know, I worked, uh, I worked on top in Texas, you know, I got a pretty decent push there. And, you know, if, if I had uh, what was, you know, after I learned a little, uh, if I didn't have such a terrible attitude about it, uh, it would have been much better for me, you know, but, but I kind of used to think I knew better than the promoter You know what was going on. Uh, okay, just do what you're supposed to do and you'd be much better off. No, or I go to Puerto Rico. I had a pretty decent spot there. You know, I got to, listen, I got, I got to work with Miguel Perez Senior in Puerto Rico. Miguel Perez Senior is the only autograph other than than a personal one I have from, from Bruno uh, to me and my family was the only autograph I ever got in all the years as a fan and in the business. I got to work a top shot with him in Puerto Rico. That, wow. that was unreal. Miguel Perez was a superstar. Sure, he and Raqqa. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I, you know, Pedro and I were really close friends. He was my neighbor uh, before we moved and before we passed. I watched Pedro as a kid. Uh, Johnny Rods. Uh, you know, Johnny Rods. Manny Soto and I were all really close. These are guys that I that I watched as a kid. I watched them as a kid. They used to laugh at me. I'd say, "Yeah, I uh, Johnny, I remember this robe you had." Oh, brother, he'd say, "Yeah, you know." And, and then I worked with Johnny. I mean, Johnny and I were lucky. Johnny and I worked a thirty-minute match in the garden one night, and the next day, the New York Post had a sports editorial that said it was the best match of the night. I, well, that, st- I still have it here. Yeah, well, it was the thing. Was...
1: But, but you're right. I mean, there were a lot of those shows where those matches would wind up being the best match on the card, better than the main event. And, and a lot of times, guys like you and, and Johnny Rods or Jose Estrada, those were the guys in those matches working their well, asses.
2: Well, you know why, Brian? We we protected the business so much. And we wanted the people to believe and the reason they believed is because we believed in it. We believed what we were doing. You know, I never, ever stepped out of character. When, when we were in the ring, you know, and, and I wasn't stiff. I never, I, I, I'm proud. I never hurt anybody in, in 20 years. I never hurt, uh, injured anybody. But I always had a philosophy. If I'm going to hit you with a forearm, I'm going to hit you with a forearm. I'd them in because the people paid money. I don't know how many uh, weeks some guy had to save up uh, to take his kid to the wrestling matches. I'm going to give him his money's worth. And the people were close by. Um, nobody's going to ever say he was faking. Nobody's going to ever say that. And, and we believed it. And, and we were compelled to give these people the best night they could possibly have. The best night they could possibly have. Each and every town didn't matter if it was the Garden or the Spectrum or the Forum in Montreal or Maple Leaf. It didn't matter where it was. They got, yeah. they got the same product from us every single night. The guys that were truly in the business. There were people that stopped in that, that thought they could take shortcuts or, or do some cheap heat stuff. You know what? We didn't, we didn't like that. We didn't like when we saw stuff like that. And, and quite often... If somebody tried to do it while you were in the ring with them, you know, I, I worked with a lot of guys that were kind of new, and and we're gonna we're gonna try to make a joke out of the business. Oh no, no, you don't. You don't make a joke out of what I do for a living. And and there were you know there was a way to to smarten them up a little bit about it. Right, right,
1: and and again, in because in those days, like you're saying, I mean that's your livelihood, especially because. Well, yeah. You talk about how close the fans could get to the ring. And I think that's, that's so true, especially, you know, if you're there live and you're, and you're right up front watching it and you're not on, you're not watching it on TV. I think it has to be even more convincing for those people. Because
2: oh yeah. I mean, really, you're and, just and a couple you know, of feet
1: away if things aren't.
2: Exactly. And and some places are a lot closer than others. You know, there were, I'll, I'll tell you, and again, please just cut me off if I'm, boring you to death here not in the slightest yeah so uh, i'm working with uh, pete sanchez in the sunny sunny side gardens in new york it was a great arena great great it was a, a really great little boxing wrestling arena has a had a tremendous amount of history to it and uh we're working there now i'm uh, even worse now, I'm really hearing impaired. Pedro Pedro finished it off for me when he whacked me on the ear one night, and I'm, I'm totally deaf in my right ear and uh, not great in the left. But anyway, anyway, uh, I got Pete Sanchez, and, and this is really out of character for me, except the business has changed so much now that I can tell the story. Right. Uh, I got Pete Sanchez in a headlock, and uh, uh, he stands me, or I stand him up, and uh, he's going to give me a spot. He says, uh, uh, "Shoot me in one tackle, hip lock, arm drag." Got it. So I cinched up on him. I said, "No, no," because I didn't hear him. <laughs> you know, I, I I heard something, but I wasn't sure what it was. And you don't want to mess that up because you're going at full speed. So right. So right. he says it. He says it again. Now Pete Pete Sanchez sometimes had a little bit of a stutter. Now I'm not sure if he's stuttering when he's trying to talk to me. Usually in the ring, he didn't. And he's also uh, got sometimes uh, a very uh, edgy disposition, like an impatient guy. So he says to me, one tackle, drop down, hip toss, arm drag. Got it. (laughs) So I grabbed him again. I said, no. Some lady stands up in the front row, leans on the apron, and looks at us and says, he said, one tackle, Drop down, hip lock, arm drag. You got it. So I said to Pete, I said, was that it? He said, yeah. So we did. So the lady in the front row gave me the spot. and Pete wanted wanted to punch me in the nose in the the dressing room. I said, I can't help it. I'm freaking deaf. What do you want from me? I said, I, I didn't hear you. I said, he says, well, he, I said, then go get mad at her. You were the one talking too loud. I said, you should have covered your face. He, right. Yeah, of course. Said, yeah. She leaned right on the apron. She said, he said one tackle. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. So now you got, you got
1: fans in the front row calling spots for you.
2: Calling my high spot for me. Right. Yeah. So I said, we're not doing that high spot for a few days. Pete. We're going to, we're going to skip that one for a while. So. <laughs> Yeah, but but we believed, so we wanted to give the people, uh, you know, every reason to be able to su- suspend their disbelief.
1: Sure, because I think a lot, of, a lot of times for a fan, I mean, and you, and you were a fan, so you know, I mean, when you're watching it on TV, the announcers could really help out. They really help yeah, it absolutely. out. Absolutely. They help well, yeah. you believe they, they can cover for some things and mistakes, or they could... <clears throat> spin things a certain way I mean gorilla as an announcer was great at that but then when you're there live they don't you don't have that benefit it's just right, right. there in front of you and and I know a lot a lot of fans have had that experience of it, it's definitely fun to go see it live but but when oh, you yeah. go down there when you go down there you kind of go ah you know what I could sort of it looks a little more real on TV you know
2: <laughs> well yeah I mean yeah I, I mean I found that as a fan too you know I said to myself, even when I first got in the business, you know, and I, and I, you know, I was in a lot of tag matches at first and I'd see some of the old timers and I'd say, well, oh, boy, those bumps don't look as bad as I thought they were going to look, you know, but you know, the old timers guys like Scullen and, and Angelo Savoldi and, uh, you know, whoever else it might've been Frank Hickey, you know, they knew what they were doing in there. You know, the newer guys, you know, we, we wrecked our bodies, you know, we wrecked our bodies. I mean, I threw my body all over. Johnny Rod still tells me. He'd say, we, we'd, you know, we'd be on the road, and, you know, you wear out after a while, and, and I'd say to Johnny, you know what, John? I'm walking and talking tonight, nice and easy. You know, no crazy stuff. And Johnny says to me, oh, two minutes into the match, you're going over the top turnbuckle, and you're you're flying around. Well, yeah, first of all, that was the fun of it. And, and to, to hear the people, how they react and to give them something like that, you know, uh, no matter what kind of pain or injuries, uh, you know, Billy or or Jackson Brown said once when the lights come up and you hear that crowd, you remember why you came, you know, and, and that's it. Yeah. When those lights come up and you're there, there is nothing like it in the world.
1: You know, I wanted to ask you about Amarillo because you brought it up too. I you know, I noticed that that seems like that was the place where you kind of got the biggest push of your career. I mean they Yeah, it was yeah, it was good. So it uh, was the, good. They put the tag belts on you. Yep. Um Yeah, so, I had
2: the yeah, I had the tag belt and I had the, the brass knuckles belt. Now uh
1: what led to that? Why was um why was that such a good area for you?
2: I was I was actually working uh up in the Maritimes, in the, the territory we call New Brunswick,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: up in Canada. And uh, when, I, when I told you the, the, the fibs that I was telling them to get into the business in Kansas City, one of the guys I met that was working in Kansas City was a guy named Tommy Martin, or Terry Martin, who was one of the owners of the maritime territory. It was a set of, it was the Cormier family. The Beast, Leo Burke, a whole bunch of them. Anyway, uh, he was in Kansas City. I, early on uh, in the business, got to go to Japan. Terry Martin was on the tour in Japan with me. And he said, holy crap, aren't you the kid that I met in Kansas City? I said, yeah. I said, that's me. So we we got friendly. We were in Japan for six weeks together uh, traveling. And he said, where are you going after this? I said, I don't know. He said, come to my territory up in the Maritimes. I said, okay. So he booked me up there. I wound up in Canada. I'm working in Canada. And Terry Funk, Bugsy McGraw and I were were tag partners up in Canada. He Mm -hmm. was working as the brute. And Terry Funk came in to work for two weeks with their top babyface, Leo Burke. I'd never met Terry. I knew who he was, of course.
1: And he was the and, world champion uh, then, I think, right? Yeah,
2: well, sure he was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he was the NWA champ. And uh, he came to me in a dressing room in, in Halifax one night. He says, he says, Where are you going after this? I said, I don't know. Home. Back to Jersey. He says, You've got to come to Amarillo. I said, What's an Amarillo? I, was, I still wasn't smart. I said, What's an Amarillo? He said, No, you've got you to come down to Amarillo. So uh, he says, Here, call my brother Dory. Uh, when you get home and you come down and, and work for us. So I finished up, uh, in, in the, in the Maritimes, I left, uh, was, it was around Easter time, I think. And, you know, I went home to New Jersey and, uh, at some point I called up, uh, Dory Funk Jr. And, uh, before I let you know, Bugsy McGraw and I were very close friends and, and Bugsy said, listen to me. He said, tell him you want a guarantee Tell him you want a guarantee. I said, "Well, how do I do that?" He said, "You tell him you want a guarantee. Don't don't go by a night to night. Tell him you want a weekly guarantee, which which really didn't happen all that often." So I said, "Ah, give it a shot. What do I have to lose?" Tells me no. You know. Right. So I called up. Yeah, I called up Dory, and uh, you know, I talked to him for a minute. I said, "Dory, I said I got to have a uh, this, and this is probably seventy six, seventy yeah, seventy six. I think." Yeah. I said, Dory, I got to have a a, a six fifty guarantee a week. He said, Well, oh, we don't, we don't do that. I said, All right. And I said, Well, no hard feelings. He said, Ah, he says, Yeah, but my brother says, he says, you, you you're going to be okay. I said, Okay. And he said, So if we can do that, I you know, I appreciate you thinking about me. He said, No, let's just do it. So I said, Okay. He said, uh, All right. Well, when can you get down here? I said to him, Well, I'd like two weeks off. To, he said, nobody ever said that to me. I said, yeah, I said, I've been, you know, Maritimes was a big territory, a lot of traveling. I said, yeah, I want to take two weeks off. He says, Jesus Christ. He said, you, he said, you're taking two. I said, yeah. So I, you know, I finally wound up, uh, going to Amarillo and, uh, you know, they, they put the tag belts on us and, uh, you know, for a very short time, I had the, uh, the brass knucks championship and, uh, you know, long trips, uh, that's where I met Brody and, you know, I worked with other guy. I worked with Red Bastine, legend, you know, absolute legend. Uh, they brought Bob Geigel in. I didn't work with him. Uh, I don't know who did, but I walked up to him and I said, Mr. Geigel." He said, Oh my God. He says, you're that punk from the Senator Hotel. I said, yeah, that's me. I said, I'm in,", <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> he said. "You know, he was a good guy. He was a good guy. I mean, so so I got to do all this stuff. That their top one of their top baby faces down there was Ricky Romero, and oh, yes. uh, you know I worked all over with Ricky Romero. I worked all over with him. Uh, Scott Casey, you know my my first my first uh, uh, match in Amarillo territory was uh, you know, with Scott Casey in uh, I think Colorado Springs, Colorado." Uh, you know, I had never been out there and, uh, promoter says, okay, uh, guys, now keep in mind where I came from. I was, I, I did a lot of work in the New York territory and, and territories like it. And, uh, he says, he, he says I need you to get about, uh, 48 minutes, uh, two out of three, which you never saw in New York. No, no, he no. Says, he says, two out of three. He says you guys split. He says, and, uh, Scotty get Davy's hand up, uh, you know, in the third one. Okay. All right, I'm saying 48 minutes. (laughs) Crap. That's like a drive to the next town. 48 minutes. What are we doing here? You don't see a lot of that on on TV in New York. No, and, and don't forget it's the NWA, which I already had a little taste of because you'll see it back then. was really hard for a WWF guy to make it in an NWA territory because the WWF guys... Being a big body territory was uh, more a punch kick right. than wrestle. NWA was wrestle. So here I am with Scott Casey, who was one of their top baby faces, who was fantastic, and who wrestled. And and we're in Colorado Springs. And about ten minutes into the match, I said to myself, "Geez, why can't I breathe? Oh, that's right, it's Colorado." <laughs> And I'm almost a mile up here. I can't. I said to Scott, I said, "What's going on?" He said, "Oh, welcome to Colorado." Oh yeah, no kidding. You know, so we did that, and so I got to work with the, uh, you know, all kinds of guys there. I worked with Chavo Guerrero. They brought him in, and uh, you know, so all kinds. Uh, uh, it was it was fun. Abe Jacobs, Abe Jacobs, a real old-time territory guy, was great. Uh, I'm, I'm sitting up in our loft right now, and there's a. The the two posters that my wife lets me hang up uh, are framed. All the other stuff is in the storage, hanging up. You know, she said, oh, no, we're not doing that. But there's a a Texas death match with a guy named Pez Watley, who was great. Oh, my God, he was such a good guy. And and Pez and I went all over the territory doing that stuff. You know, so... so, uh, You know, for like like I said, not to perseverate on this stuff, but boy, oh boy, I, you know, I did live the dream. You know, I'm I'm paying for it a bit, you know, with the body, but uh, you know, I get around and I I do all my stuff and I still go to the gym. Well, I haven't been for a couple of months because of my last tune-up here. But
1: right, you haven't. uh, You had that that latest knee surgery to get over how many? Yeah, I had
2: uh for my knees. It's the seventh knee surgery five and two. Uh, I had a, I had a reconstructed Achilles tendon. I had two hip labrum surgeries and I had two hip labrum or hip replacements. Uh, I had my back's got a, I think it's a three level fusion. Uh, You know, I had New York eye and ear. I had to go get my ears operated on, not successful. Uh, I can't think of what else there, Brian. And how long did you wrestle
1: of, for about 15 years? Just
2: just just the hair under 20 years. 20. Yeah. Wow. Just the hair under 20. You know, the the hearing is is the most annoying part. You know, it's it's frustrating. I you know, I have hearing aids. I don't wear them as often as I should. Uh, you know, because they're a bit annoying. It's a, you know, it's a it's a frustrating and embarrassing problem. It's it's actually aggravating for other people around me sometimes. Uh, but you know, Stan Hansen and I used to joke. He's as you know, he, I'm not as blind as he is, but we're both equally as deaf. And uh, you know, we cup our ear. And I say, Stan, I try to do it so nobody notices. He said, I don't care if they notice anymore. I'm cupping my ear so I can hear. You know, I said, oh, all right. You know. So, uh, you know, it was great. So, you know, I, I got to work in different places. I made trips to Japan. I got treated really well in Japan. I, you know, I got to work on top in Japan. You know, I, I tagged with guys. Uh, Wahoo McDaniel was my tag partner. Uh, Hogan, uh, Hogan and I, uh, worked with Inoki and I don't remember who, my son always shows me this stuff. You know, uh, uh, Hogan, Don Morocco and I. Uh, in six man tags against the Japanese guys, you know Baba and Sakaguchi and so so you know i i got to uh i got to live the life i got to live the life
1: and it's great that your son takes an interest like that and you know is 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 a fan of of your career that doesn't always happen with the children of yeah. Sons, you
2: yeah know? yeah my my kids were always uh like i said they were always exposed to it i mean my youngest son you know know knew some of the guys and you know still does of course the ones that are left uh uh, but they were always very respectful of it, and uh, and the guys all treated my kids great. Like I said, you know, Dominic Danucci was was like a part of our family, as was Mike Cicluna and Mike's wife and Dominic's wife and and Bruno, uh, Manny Soto, Johnny Rods. You know, my kids uh, are as comfortable with them. Uh, Ray Apollo, who was Doink the clown,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, we were we were up at a at a hall of fame when it was in Amsterdam, New York and uh you know i think I think my son was sixteen, seven maybe anyway uh here's Ray, who I'm very you know we're 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 really good buddies, and I don't know it was uh, eleven thirty, twelve o'clock at night, and I see Ray and my son go so I said, "Oh whoa, where are you going? Come back here, you two, come back here and Ray says what's the problem? I'll have him back nice and early. Don't you worry. Okay. So I guess it was seven o'clock the next morning that I I was having a nervous breakdown. They came in. I said, what are you doing? He said, I told you it would be nice and early. Hmm. I said, you know, but but he would take care of my kids. He wouldn't let anything happen. You know, so I don't know where they went. And then another time he said to my other son, my youngest, uh, while Ray was still in character as Doink the Clown <laughs> after the Hall of Fame. My son says, uh, hey, Uncle Ray Ray, let's go get something to eat. Okay, let's go. So Sean says, well, are you going to change? No, we're not changing. <laughs> now, imagine, imagine this in a little town like Amsterdam, New York. right? They're going to go to a fast food place at 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night with this evil clown and so I said I said you're going like that so I just waved my hand I said be careful Sean came back and he went oh my god you can't he said you never saw a Taco Bell clear out so fast in your life he said we walked in and they looked at Ray and people actually took their stuff and walked out the doors and left I said you didn't go dressed like that. So Ray says, what could possibly go wrong? What could go wrong? What, don't worry about it. So, so, you know, my kids were always around it. And, and my older son really loves the history of it. Right. So, so he'll, you know, he, he he's the one that notifies me when somebody passes away, uh, you know, or is about to, uh, you know. Uh, you know, they, they they got close to guys like, you know, Paul Vachon stayed at my house for a week when my kids were he'd be on the floor playing with my daughter with her toys you know uh, so you know my kids friends would say my god look at the life you had look at the life you had you know the stuff you did well you know, it, so, you know.
1: yeah it is something special um guys like you I mean, you have a treasure trove of stories that are just waiting to be unlocked for people who ask the right questions. So I hope that, you know, (laughs) I mean, it's the truth. I can't believe it sometimes, the experiences that some of you guys had. And and I thank you you for sharing them.
2: Well, thank you for asking me. I told you I'm I'm flattered, Um, you know, I'm I'm flattered that you would even ask uh, uh, Davey O'Hannon. You know, I always say, I know my place in this business. Uh, you know, I was a nobody, but I got to live it, and uh, and I appreciate it.
1: Well, you gave a lot of memories to a lot of people, and a lot of people remember your name. And, and like I said at the beginning, anybody that watched, especially the WWF in those years, they, they knew who you were then, and they know who you are now. Believe me.
2: Well, thank you. You made my day.
1: There you have it, folks. My interview. With Davey O'Hannon, and I really do have to reiterate what a blast that was. Davey, thank you so much. Thank you for being such a great sport and really doing two interviews. You know, we talked for about two and a half hours because it was partly what you just heard and partly the, the Gorilla Monsoon specific interview that he gave me for the book. So Davey, thank you for being so generous with your time. That really was a blast, a very unique Conversation of the kind that I like to do on this show, as I hope you guys know by now. But next week for the 75th episode, I've got something different, something special. I hinted about it last week. I'm going to be dipping into my own personal archives. Okay, the Brian R. Solomon archives of old school wrestling interviews that I did years ago that I have just sitting around, sitting around here. At my palatial estate in Trumbull, Connecticut, not very palatial, but I do have some gems that I like to think of as wrestling interview gems that really uh, were not not much was done with them. But I'll talk more about it next week, how this process happened. Just for now, I want you to know that next week, the interview I'm going to be pulling out is a 2006 interview that I did with the American Dream dusty roads at a time when we were both working for wwe and we were both spending a lot of time in stanford and it is about a half hour interview which i'll be bringing to you next week with my own commentary providing my own context it's the kind of stuff that you can't hear anywhere else except here at shut up and wrestle you may have heard it hinted at on the uh, drive-through with jim cornett and brian last And that is what I'm going to be bringing to you next week for the 75th episode of Shut Up and Wrestle. Also, coming up on the way, I've got other guests such as Megan Baker Kelly, the daughter of Ox Baker, John Giamondo, aka Johnny Photo, longtime senior photographer for WWE, and many others. Keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle. You can find the archive of every Shut Up and Wrestle episode at our website. S-U-A-W-P-O-D dot You can also find the podcast, of course, wherever you find your podcasts. Podcast Addict, Podbean, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, all the usual suspects. Subscribe. And while you're at it, go to the Facebook uh, group, the Facebook group for Shut Up and Wrestle. Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. It's a great bunch of people, just about a thousand strong always new content to be found there related to the show so please go and join and check out the many other projects that i work on of course first and foremost the wrestling news from Arcadian and vanguard i am the news editor for that program and it is a daily show and i do mean daily every single morning we've got 10 to 15 minutes of condensed wrestling news read by the illustrious mike semper vv go to the wrestlingnews.com check it out Also, you can go to YouTube. It's on the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube page. Subscribe to it. You will not regret it. My book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic is available in print, digital, and audio form on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, and at many other fine retailers. The magazines that I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can get at pwi-online.com. Also, while I'm at it, I happen to be the co-host with the great Al Castle of the PWI podcast, which you can also find in all the usual places. Then there's Inside the Ropes magazine, a magazine I'm also proud to be a part of. You can pick up digital and print copies at Inside the Ropes magazine.com. If you're looking for me on social media, I can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. There's also my Facebook author page, Brian Solomon Writer, and on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been... Brian r solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that i'm not bad i'm just drawn that way so long wrestling fans